Hello, my name is Corey Fratelli. I'm a pulmonary nurse at National Jewish Health. Working at National Jewish Health allows me opportunities to help pulmonary patients through face-to-face -face contact, as well as on the telephone. As a nurse, I have time to spend educating patients about their disease and discuss interventions during times they are ill. Thank you for joining us for this podcast called Women in ILD, Managing ILD Patients During the COVID Pandemic. Today, we'll be giving a general overview of interstitial lung diseases, discuss high-risk patients and their concerns during the time of COVID-19, creating an action plan for the patient, and my personal experience with telehealth and its impact on patient management. So a little bit of background about interstitial lung disease. Interstitial lung disease is an umbrella term for a variety of lung diseases that are characterized by scarring and inflammation of the lungs. Overall, ILD accounts for roughly 15% of the cases seen by pulmonologists. The prevalence, however, here at National Jewish is a bit skewed compared to other locations as National Jewish is one of the largest ILD referral centers in the United States. When ILD patients present to National Jewish, their referral is reviewed for possible disease orientation and then sent to a specific provider who specializes in that disease process. Every patient is unique and therefore, instead of categorizing patients, I like to think of it as patients are paired. They're paired with an expert in that disease process. This way, a more individualized approach to medicine can be initiated. While the disease processes may share specific characteristics enough to categorize them, the presentation of the disease process and its trajectory is absolutely unique for each patient over time. So what are some commonly seen interstitial lung diseases in our clinic? Idiopathic unknown pulmonary fibrosis, connective tissue or autoimmune disease-related ILD, such as ILD related to rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, or other mixed tissue, connective tissue diseases, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, chronic eosinophilic pneumonia, familial pulmonary fibrosis, drug-induced lung disease, interstitial pneumonias, and smoking-related interstitial lung disease, and that's just to name the most prevalent ones we see. Patients typically initiate care at all stages of the disease process. Some patients present with initial odd symptoms, such as exercise-related shortness of breath, and a workup is completed once they arrive, and it helps us initially diagnose them with ILD. Other times, patients are presenting to seek a second opinion or to clarify if they actually have what is suspected to be ILD, or because their hometown provider is unable to control their interstitial lung disease in a manner that the patient sees most beneficial. Oftentimes, patients present with ILD symptoms such as dyspnea on exertion, fatigue, mention of air hunger, and there can be cough with or without phlegm. Truly, sometimes even nonspecific pulmonary symptoms. Usually a key that tips me off to that the patient has ILD is when a patient says, I used to be able to run or walk now, but when I move, I feel tired and out of breath. 
This is when I asked them to grab their pulse oximeter and humor me with just a little bit of experimentation. So I have them put the pulse ox on their finger. I have them rest. Typically their oxygen saturations will be in the higher 90s. They'll get up to walk across the room, keep walking about a minute or two and they'll see their oxygen saturations dip. And that's usually the first indication that something's a little bit off. It's a little trick I like to use with patients at times. So how do we identify high-risk patients with the ILD? So some signs and symptoms that are pretty typical that we see are dyspnea and cough. Those are the first indications that things are not really as they should be. But we don't stop there. Typically, we do a six-minute walk test plus an oxygen titration test. We'll do pulmonary function tests that include DLCO. We'll perform high-resolution CT scans that look for specific interstitial lung disease patterns. Candidates for biopsy will undergo bronchoscopy with biopsy and fluid sampling, which is a great way to see what's happening at the tissue level. And of course, various serology panels to be sure it's not an underlying disease. So concerns for interstitial lung disease in the time of COVID-19 is the normal symptoms that a patient would always feel which would be dyspnea and cough as their interstitial lung disease progresses. But what also becomes of concern is, do they have enough medication to properly manage their symptoms and disease progression? Do they have enough oxygen? Is their need increased? Is there access to oxygen if there's a new onset of dyspnea? When do they call their provider? What steps do they take to manage their ILD, yet still practice social distancing? Should they go to the hospital? And if so, when should they go to the hospital? How to identify exacerbations, disease progressions, COVID-19 symptoms, or sequela from COVID-19 become very important. So let's talk a little bit about a tool that I like to use with my interstitial lung disease patients. The concept for the tool was taken from patients who are diagnosed with asthma. So patients typically diagnosed with asthma are usually given an asthma action plan. And this action plan is an educational standard that teaches asthma patients what to do when different situations of health and disease are occurring in their body. So teaching patients about their disease reduces the number of hospital admissions and readmissions from exacerbations over time. And this was well studied. So taking that concept into my own practice, when I triage patients who have interstitial lung disease and they're having symptoms that either seem like exacerbations or could possibly be related to COVID, I use a similar tool to this asthma action plan and I lead the patients through this practice. How do I measure the effectiveness of this tool I like to use? Well, medicine is dynamic. Health and disease always exist in a fine balance, and it requires communication between patient and provider to navigate that line. The effectiveness of the ILD action plan is measured, or should I say monitored, through patient feedback. Do our patients tell us this is working? Or does something need to be changed or update it due to medication changes or too many recent exacerbations. 
What are the benefits of creating this action plan with your patients? Well, the benefit of this type of action plan is twofold. First, developing a plan with the patient helps to empower the patient to become accountable for their part of the medical relationship. The plan allows a platform of communication between patient and provider. Second, it allows the patient and the provider to agree to use similar language around their disease process. So standardizing the language will help to decrease the miscommunication or lack of understanding between patient and provider. So let's get to some key elements on what I include in my action plan with my patients. Well, everyone knows the colors of a traffic light. Green, you go. Yellow, you slow down or pause. And red, you stop. So I use that similar concept in these action plans. So green actions would be our go actions. They would be our maintenance items that should be occurring on a daily basis. So that's taking our maintenance medication as prescribed, washing our hands, covering our coughs and sneezes, and avoiding other sick contacts. Yellow actions, those actions where we should say, whoa, I need to slow down here or pause are those things that patients may need to begin monitoring or supplementing to their already established maintenance regimes. So when they're not beginning to feel well, this yellow stage kicks in. These items include staying at home, separating themselves from other healthy contacts, and knowing how to supplement with rescue medication. This yellow section is actually the most important. It's similar to having the patient walk a tightrope. If the patient stays focused, they can navigate this thin line towards health. If the patient fails to be focused on how to augment their normal routine, they may end up falling towards illness. This yellow section is where the patient's plan must really be individualized because what works for one patient may not work for another. And if the patient fails, it leads towards that red zone. This is where we tell patients, do not stop, do not attempt to call your provider, Instead, proceed directly to the emergency room. In this red zone, a patient needs help immediately. They need immediate action and intervention. A great recommendation for red zone planning is having an envelope taped to the refrigerator or back of the door that the patient can go and grab with all of their pertinent information as they proceed to the ER. This will save time and allow the patient to get help very quickly. Switching gears just a little bit to our more recent experiences with telehealth. So everyone is telecommuting now. Telecommunications and telehealth especially has become a form of our personal protective equipment. Another pro to telehealth is accessibility. Patients tell us it decreases their commute time to and from clinic, and they don't mind checking in more frequently but there are some cons to telehealth. Accessibility is also a con. We worry about patients' access to internet connections. We wonder, is their internet connection stable? Is it secure? And most of all, is it private? Do patients have the hardware needed to get online? As pulmonary providers, one of our biggest clues towards insights into ILD disease management 
is what we hear during a physical assessment of the heart and lungs. So during telehealth visits, providers are not always able to gather all the information they once were able to. Patients also report missing that patient provider contact, that human interaction. Those human to human interactions is what creates the art of medicine. It has the ability to touch the soul of another human being, making them feel, if even for a moment, so significant. So how do we effectively monitor our ILD patients during telehealth visits? In a ground rounds at National Jewish this past August, the presenter directed our attention to a quote from ACOG committee opinion number 798, which states, evidence suggests that telehealth provides comparable health outcomes when compared with traditional methods of healthcare delivery without compromising the patient-physician relationship. And it also has been shown to enhance patient satisfaction and improve patient engagement. So according to this ACOG quote, follow-up care would be successful and could proceed via subsequent telehealth resources if it's appropriate. There are gaps that may exist in communication, especially in telehealth communication, that impacts our patients. So health literacy is not the only thing a provider worries about now. It's also technology literacy. Are patients capable of navigating technology? Or do family members need to assist during telehealth visits? So how do we bridge these gaps? We need to involve family. Can we bring them into the clinic visit? And are patients okay with that? Do we need to allow for more time to get the patients set up and comfortable with the technology they're using? So some final thoughts. One way to help any patient reduce anxiety in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic is to arm them with tools that help them take control of their own ability towards health. In doing so, not only are you empowering your patients, but you're also acknowledging that they know their body best and you're here to help them navigate things when times turn difficult. As providers, we have the ability to create a space where patients feel safe and heard, and they also want a shared responsibility in their health and in their disease process. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at insightsinild.com. That's insightsinild.com.